electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Money starts right now, live from the Nasdaq market site overlooking New York City's Times Square. I'm Melissa Lear. Traders on the desk are Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, David Seberg, and Guy Adami. Tonight on Fast, stocks selling off into the close today after President Trump reignited trade war fears. We'll bring you the words that spook the markets and get the latest from D.C. Plus, Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg getting grilled again, this time by European lawmakers, as his Cambridge Analytica apology tour continues. But one of our traders says he may have said enough to get the stock back to all-time highs. We will explain. But first, we start off with what could be a major turning point for financials. The House is set to vote on rolling back banking regulations that have been in place since the financial crisis. Kayla Tausche's got all the details. Kayla. Melissa, what you're watching on the House floor uh, on the other side of me is a vote series that is ongoing at the end of which will take up a major legislative priority for the Trump administration and GOP leadership. That is relaxing Obama-era bank regulation that stems from the financial crisis. The House of Representatives and the House Financial Services Committee particularly passed its version, the Financial Choice Act, last June. The Senate Banking Committee incorporated some of that bill but left other parts on the cutting room floor in order to reach a bipartisan deal a few months ago. The Senate bill is what will be voted on today in the House and will become law once the president signs it, despite some 11th hour haggling by Congressman Jeb Henserling, who chairs the House Financial Services Committee. And while the law doesn't dismantle Dodd-Frank, it significantly alters some of its benchmarks to change the type of banks that would fall under stricter regulation. For instance, it lifts the size of banks that would qualify as too big to fail. It disqualifies some mid-sized banks from the Volcker rule, and it eases mortgage rules for small banks. Certainly, those are tenets that the banking industry has been fighting for for the last decade or so. Uh, so we'll be interesting to see exactly what that vote count is, a hard-fought uh, vote in the Republican Party and one that is today likely to pass uh, very easily, Melissa. All right, Kayla, we'll continue to watch that vote count. Thanks so much, Kayla Tausch in D.C. So with less regulation, rising rates, and increased volatility, is it time for the banks to break out? And this had been the one thing that a lot of the bank bulls have been pointing to, Guy, a lighter touch on regulation. Here we have it. Will banks finally break free from the from interest rates? I think we all think the answer to that question is yes. They haven't. Banks haven't traded particularly well since middle of March. A lot of them topped out around March 14th, give or take. But you know, I think this is just one more sort of arrow in the bank's quiver. Tim and Karen and David speak to this all the time. And for me, it's it comes down to again, what's the right valuation? Not necessarily price to earnings, but what's the right price to book? And I still think in the environment we find ourselves in, somewhere between 1.6 and 1.8, price to book is fair. City, for a lot of reasons, trades basically at book value. I think that's cheap. Value Act thought that was cheap. They just invested $1.2 billion. But even if you put a very reasonable 1.3 multiple on a city, for example, right. who closed at $71, you're talking about 
a $93 stock. So I do think there's runway left. Yeah, and, and on an asset basis, and guys talking about price to book versus an earnings basis, I think actually the argument is, is, is a better one for banks. Um, I don't think that today's news, and it's, it's interesting, it's kind of like flashback. You see like those, those vote charts, and yeah. I feel like we could be watching a TARP vote back in 2009 or 2008. And, and ultimately, um, I don't think that this is going to do anything for, for the valuations of the banks. I think ultimately we've already had a major error and a tailwind for banks of deregulation. I think a lot of that was already priced in. I, I'm, uh, I do think banks have underperformed, and I think the valuations are very interesting. And I, I think higher interest rates, first of all, the regional banks are the biggest beneficiary, and it right. works for them until it doesn't. But the money center yep. banks, I think, are margins of success. And we saw the deal yesterday in the regionals. We had, right, yep. we had Fifth, Fifth Third, Third by MB Financial. Fifth I know, Fifth Third. But apparently yep. it's named for the streets that it's on. Was it um, anyway. Anyway, right. <laughs> um, buying MB Financial. And, and there is a thesis that it's going to be the smaller, the mid-sized banks that will also really see this wave of yeah. consolidation. But I think, to Tim's point, that's priced in. I think the smaller and mid-sized banks right now, the regionals and sort of, you know, the community banks, it's really priced into the equation. Where it's not priced in and where I think investors are really missing it, it's the trust banks. The trust banks actually fall under a specific rule that, that gives them a better setup. And a setup from leverage perspective, basically any, any ca cash that's held, um, you know, at a central bank, and this is only for trust banks, they're excluded from the, the leverage calculation, which is enormous for them. So the trust banks haven't really priced those in. The northern trusts of the world, for example, haven't priced in that scenario. So I think right now that's where I'd be putting capital work. So what's not priced in at this point? If regulation is priced in, a better interest rate environment, I don't know if that's priced in. I don't know. Uh -huh. uh, what, what are we waiting for in terms of the trade in banks for this year? Well, I think a growing economy, a growing okay. loan book. If you think about what didn't people like in the last earnings, even though the earnings no for the top growth. one was good, uh -huh. was that the loan growth was a little bit soft. And so to me, that's loan growth is a really important driver of, of profitability, not just levering up the balance sheet. Loan growth, so those are you know higher margin products. That's good. I agree with Tim that I don't think we're going to see anything meaningful to the banks from whatever comes today. I guess maybe there's a little downside if, if they aren't able to pass anything. Right. But I think rising interest rates, a growing economy, I think their ability to buy back stock, increase their dividends, and the valuation is really not crazy here. Of course, the small and mid-sized banks should be more expensive. There is no chance for the big money center banks to be in any meaningful M&A activity, right. right? They can't. They're too big. Right. But for a small and mid-sized uh, to me, though, I'd rather be in J.P. Morgan, the absolute cream of the crop, at 12, 13 times earnings doesn't seem expensive to me. And Citi is, I think, more upside. It is cheaper. It's cheaper on a book. I, I think the tangible book is actually a little bit lower, but I think there's upside in the city as well. And then I also have some Bank America. Yeah, I, I kind of like to take the middle ground. I think that's Bank of America. And, and I think if you think, uh, to me, again, when Dan Tarillo resigned, and this was essentially the, the middle Fed, ground in terms of valuation? Yes, okay. I think valuation and also the greatest, the, the middle ground between the risk of regulatory overhang, um, the profitability. In other words, mm -hmm. free money center banks. You've got JP Morgan, cream of the crop, Bank of America in the middle, um, and I think Citibank at the low end of quality. Uh, and what that means is, I think, in terms of risk and perception of regulatory overhang, where these guys were also more hamstrung and their inability to give capital back. Therefore, I think Citi is the most levered to improve conditions. But I think Bank of America probably has a lot more flexibility. And again, I think they were such a, a, a seen as a bad boy. They had a big overhang. And I think this is actually something that's changed for them. But in terms of large versus small and mid medium or mid mid-sized banks, where, where should we go? Steve Eisman, you know Steve Eisman, 
Of yeah, he Dick played Shore for the Vince. Detroit Red Wings. I tell you what, he's a fantastic general manager Eisenman, down in Tampa. But that's not right. the Steve Eisman I meant. The Steve Eisman oh, I meant was sorry. the was of big short fame, yeah. right? Bet against subprime yes. in a winning way. We had him. Um, he said that the, where he sees value right now is in the regional banks, precisely because of the consolidation wave that is going to happen yeah. because of this lighter regulatory touch. And the KRE, if you look at that, to his point, is really outperformed. It's trading right, right around an all-time high, where the XLF has actually failed at 07 levels. By the way, Mr. Eisman, that's Steve Eisman, also talked about Deutsche Bank recently. Yes, yes. Problem child yeah. of Problem the child. And world. if you look, I mean, Deutsche Bank did rally today a little bit, but here's a stock now trading below $13, which in my opinion, if it was a U.S., if Deutsche Bank were Citibank, mm -hmm. we would be talking about it Every single day. The fact that we don't is because I think it's this a is one thing. to watch. Thursday they've got an annual meeting. I don't know what we're expecting from that new CEO, Christian Seving. I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, it looks like sewing, but it's pronounced seving. Well, and, and were and, you watching that? Yeah, a little bit. I, I think the the argument for the regional banks is also one that it's a very fine line. I, I think they are the most sensitive right now, and higher interest rates work for them uh, right. until they don't. In other words, I actually think they're the most at risk if the Fed moves too far. And the credit sensitivities that I do think are out there. The question is, when do they hit? I think right now you stay in that trade, but it, you have to be watching those credit analytics. All right. Well, our next guest says to keep betting on the banks. Let's go off the charts with Chris Verone of Strategus Research Partners. Find out why. Hey, Chris. Hey, Melissa. How are you? Yeah, and exactly. And I think this bull market in bank stocks remains alive and well right here. And what we brought with us is the KBW Bank Index uh, over the last three years. And what we see is these long consolidations, five or six months, then a catalyst, then a long pause, then a catalyst. We've now paused for the better part of the last four or five months, but at the same time, the internals are improving. Three quarters of the bank index made a 20-day high. We think that's a bullish development for these stocks. And I think when you look at the regionals in particular, very quietly carving out 10-month relative price highs versus the S&P on an absolute basis right back uh, at the old high. So regionals leading this move, we think that's a constructive framework. And when you look at some of these names, the most important of them all, uh, J.P. Morgan here. The bull market still very much intact. The trend line is there. You get this above 115. We're looking for a 135 target. And then when you start to look at some of the smaller ones, BB&T, another name that has basically been sideways all year, right back at the highs, above 55, 56, you're looking at a $63 stock. So I think this bull market is very much still alive uh, in these names. So would you rather, Chris? Oh, I love this game. Oh, wow, Chris playing would you rather. Well, I mean, yeah, why not? He's I a member of the Fast Money family. Oh, wouldn't he? Um, regionals or XLF? Regionals right here. Uh, I want to own bank stocks. And when you look at the XLF, actually the largest weight in the XLF, I believe, is Berkshire, right? So there's a lot of insurance weight uh, in the XLF. We want to own KRE, KRX. That's where the leadership is found. All right, Chris, thanks. Good to see you. Chris Verone, Strategus Research. Karen, by the way, mentioned yes. City, the tangible book, because that's what I do. I, I look up things, but tangible book in City is like $61.02. With that said, even if you put a relatively, in my opinion, unremarkable 1.3 multiple, it's still 9% upside or 10% upside from the current levels that we're seeing. Just to button that up. Yes, nice yeah. button. Nice button. <laughs> Coming up, the Dow sinking nearly 200 points into the close today as trade war fears creep back into the market. We'll bring you the words that had investors so spooked and get the latest from D.C. Plus, Mark Zuckerberg in the hot seat again. The Facebook CEO facing some harsh questions from European lawmakers today about the company's privacy scandal. We'll bring you all the details, tell you why one of our traders is now uber bullish. And later, UBS's big tech, whoops, 
the strategist that's set to sell tech at the lows now says it's a major buy. What's Oops. that about? He'll be here to tell us what he got wrong and why he'll be right this time around. We are live at the Nasdaq market site in New York City's Times Square. Much more Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Stock selling off into the close today after the president's words reignited trade war fears. Let's get back to Kayla Tausche in D.C. She's doing a, a twofer for us tonight. Hey, Kayla. Hey, Melissa. Always happy to, especially when there's big news. You know, the markets rallied again this morning because overnight China's finance ministry said it would lower auto tariffs. And you also had a report in The Wall Street Journal about a potential deal uh, coming together for ZTE, where the U.S. would relax concessions. That made it seem like both sides were edging toward a deal to make this economic ceasefire uh, somewhat permanent uh, between the U.S. and China. Today in the Oval Office, while sitting next to South Korea's president, President Trump said not so fast. President Xi and I have a great relationship, as President Moon can attest. Uh, but there is no deal. Uh, we will see what happens. We are discussing deals. We're discussing various deals. We can do a 301. We can do where we don't need China, where we can just say, look, this is what we want. This is what we think is fair. Uh, that's always a possibility if a negotiated deal doesn't work out. So that certainly had a dramatic effect on the market, but it was a welcome note to Congress, which had been extremely critical of the seeming potential for the administration to be ceding ground on national security and law enforcement in order to shore a short-term trade win. Earlier today, the Treasury Secretary was on Capitol Hill at a hearing on tax reform, and he was asked repeatedly about ZTE and about the administration's thinking on that front. He said it is not a quid pro quo and that the president takes national security very seriously. That being said, Congress is taking several steps of its own to try to safeguard the penalties that have already been put in place on ZTE and is extremely worried about what the president would potentially do there. So we'll see what tomorrow brings. We do know that the Commerce Secretary is going to China late next week. He is not only going to be negotiating more export deals, or at least that was the plan for more crops and commodities from the U.S. to China, but the Commerce Department is also tasked with this review of ZTE and whether it decides to make any changes. Melissa? All right, Kayla, thank you. Kayla Tausche pulling double duty for us in Washington. You know, one of the stocks that I have on my screen, I'm sure you guys are watching this all the time, Boeing. Yep. Boeing seems to be the poster child of these trade war talks. And it was the intraday chart in Boeing. It just sort of slid lower into the close there. What'd you make of it? Well, again, I think it's headline risk that Boeing yeah. is now associated with. And, you know, we can talk about algorithmic trading or program trading, but I think a lot of it has to do with that. I'll look at Boeing, and I'm sort of in the, at 21 times next year's earnings. I don't think it's all that expensive. So I think sell-offs in Boeing are, are a mistake and should be bought. I, I totally agree. I mean, Guy's been straight on this story. I mean, he's nailed it. This is a free cash flow story. I mean, th their ability to generate free cash flow is significant. Any pullback in this stock is a buying opportunity. I think the slide we saw today was simply ta tape reading algos and, and buyers simply stepping away to, to wait for more headlines to come out, if any, were going to. So 
to his point again, headline risk by any weakness in Boeing. I, look, I say good for Congress. I mean, this really, the, the issue with China is about intellectual property and protecting American companies and protecting access. Um, this auto bone that they threw back at us, it doesn't even help U.S. automakers. We have deals, we have JVs in China. This was a, basically a gift to the European automakers who are the ones that rallied. So, um, what a this. A gift to Tesla, too. It, it was a gift by to the Tesla. Way. Yeah. That still doesn't have a factory there. True. So, <laughs> I, I just, you know, I hear the back and forth on this. One, I, you know, I, I worry about, we're focused on manufacturing jobs from China, that, that is not the issue here. So um, I think we're going to see volatile headlines. Bottom line for the market, um, to get so comfortable that China is now in the back burner on trade wars, no, it, it will absolutely be something we talk about for the next probably year. Yeah, how do you see this yeah. risk, Karen? I, I if it is a risk. Is, I believe that it is a risk. I think you sort of, to own a Boeing, I think you have to have a, a, an idea of where you think trade's going to come out because it's in there. Maybe it's overpriced. The, the risk of it is overpriced. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. I don't know. But it being the poster child, that sort of makes me afraid. It's not expensive if everything's fine. But yeah. is knows? it expensive I, I, if I there's think, a trade I, war? I, I think well, obviously China, China, back to you. China, I think the, the, the biggest products they buy are basically Boeing airplanes. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So is there? Yes, there's yeah. absolutely. I actually think it's overstated. I think the Boeing China risk is overstated. I think this order book is unbelievably diverse. I think the, the, the profitable planes that they actually sell around the world are more important than right. the ones China is buying and the ones they make yeah. no money on. The 737s, yeah. I, I actually don't think it's as big of a deal. And they have scaling uh, mechanisms, scaling cost mechanisms built into their models. So when they're actually in production, it scales up and it offsets any of the any of the uh, you know the extra cost, if you will. Still ahead, home builders getting crushed now on track for the worst year since the financial crisis, and there could be more pain ahead. We will tell you why. I'm Melissa Lee. You're watching Fast Money on CNBC, first in business worldwide. In the meantime, here's what else is coming up on Fast. That was a mistake, and I'm sorry for it. Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg aced another round of questions as his apology tour continues. And we'll tell you why that's got one of our traders downright bullish on the stock. We'll explain. Plus, meet your broker of the future. And one company is shaking up the asset management industry with its robo-advisors. And the CEO says it's only just begun. We'll hear from her when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. The Cambridge Analytica scandal is far from over for Facebook. As CEO Mark Zuckerberg met with leaders from the European Parliament today, our Aditi Roy joins us with the very latest on that story. Hi, Aditi. Hi, Melissa. It was Zuckerberg's third appearance in front of regulators to talk about the Cambridge Analytica scandal. And immediately after he took the hot seat before EU lawmakers, he apologized. It's also become clear over the last couple of years that we haven't done enough to prevent these tools from being used for harm as well. And that goes for fake news, foreign interference in elections, and developers misusing people's information. We didn't take a broad enough view of our responsibility and that was a mistake, and I'm sorry for it. Zuckerberg addressed topics ranging from data privacy to the company's commitment to its European users. He said Facebook has taken down more than 200 apps and investigated thousands of apps as a part of the company's internal review. He also said that election transparency is one of the company's top priorities and addressed Russian interference in the 2016 U.S. presidential election. We weren't prepared enough for the kind of coordinated misinformation operations that we are now aware of. So since then, 
we've made significant operation, uh, investments to protect the integrity of elections by making these kinds of attacks much harder to do on Facebook. And I have more confidence that we're going to get this right going forward because we've already done a better job in several important elections since 2016. He added that Facebook has been using AI to remove fake accounts and that the company will be rolling out other measures reducing fake accounts later this summer. Back to you, Melissa. All right. Thank you very much, Aditi. So um, we said before that one of the traders was an Uber bull now on Facebook, and I'm guessing that it's Seberg. Guessing? I mean, come on. No. <laughs> At 150 bucks, I mean, we talked about on the show, it was, it was low down. You hated time. it. I loved, it. I loved you it. love it. Come on, pull the tapes. <laughs> loved it at 150. Up here, look, am I chasing it at these levels? I'm not necessarily running out tomorrow and buying the stock aggressively. I am buying any pullback, however. I really do think this is going to clean up fine for them. It's a show me story a little bit for next quarter. Um, look, this company's growing earnings at 40% this year, and I think 25% next year, and that might be low. So it is a really compelling story still. The growth backdrop is strong. And I I do believe that this has had a minimal effect on advertisers swaying their budgets away from the platform. Maybe yeah. for now, but I, I got to tell know you, yet, you know, right? I think, first of all, I want to be clear. I think that the European regulators are so far ahead of the rest of the world, especially those here. Um, GDPR is a model that I think we're going to be following here. And if you don't pay attention to this, I think you're going you're to have trouble. And if you don't look at the valuation of your company through the lens that is, how are they protecting your data? How important is so our software and algos to their core business? And then figure out your valuation. I think we're in a new realm for that. I, I feel right, right I now we're back at sort of pre-Cambridge analytics type levels at about right right about here and I feel yeah. like from here on how is a business environment going to be has it changed right. will it change and will it be different and the answer is unclear yeah. exactly. yes it will change almost uh, what, what is, certainly the, what yes. is the quantitative effect of that I don't know I don't right. know if it is known the one difference though between now and Cambridge Analytica where we are the price is the same the earnings were extraordinary right. so that's a you know that's an important data point one that underpins it but we don't know GDPR doesn't start till what next week or well, it starts it starts, yeah, it, starts in, it starts yeah. in a week All in right. Europe and, and we don't even we know what know it's going to be here I just, I just think that, again, I look at a company that had underperformed the triple Qs or its peer group for two years in the biggest tech bull market we've had since the dot-com era, and you think it's now going to go away? And this is after Cambridge Analytica? That was even before. No, but I, I, just don't, I just don't think there's another platform that you can even compare Facebook to. Instagram, in particular, the ad buyers are tripping over themselves to advertise on that platform. Look, I think they've done the right things. They've said the right things. They've absolutely addressed this correctly. In the near term, is the stock range bound 100%? However, long term, in order for it to really work and get to a higher level, it's gonna ha we're going to have to see their next quarter earnings and know that there wasn't an impact on ad dollars. When it was meandering in the 150s, I was not with David, who was yeah. steadfast in his belief that, no, it's true. He thought this, he he was, a fist bump. But where are you now? Get, now at 183. I, my biggest concern, everything Tim and Karen just mentioned, and can they, can they say without equivocation that there's not another potential? No, they Cambridge haven't said that. Exactly. They were caught with their pants which, down once. Why? Leads, leads me to believe maybe there, there's never just one cockroach. All right. Let's look at technology here. Our next guest says, uh, said to sell the space back in March. Take a listen. Buy stuff that has momentum and growth. And we've seen tech significantly outperform through this vol environment. And about now, six weeks after that vol peak, you start to see those momentum stocks fade. And tech in the crosshairs of regulatory scrutiny and trade wars, I think, is a logical place to reduce exposure tactically. Since that call, the XLK, the ETF that tracks technology, is up 7%. That call uh, since March 28th, which is about two weeks after the tech ETF 
bottomed. UBS strategist Keith Parker is back with us now with the mea culpa and this tech call to explain his brand new call on the sector. Keith, thanks for coming back. Thank you for having what me. What do you think you missed? So our, our view was March 20th, 21st was a logical point where that you do typically see that momentum pull back. We got that. On a relative basis, tech bounced around the bottom. What did we get in terms of earnings, blowout earnings? Uh, so we saw that rotation settling down. We've been strategically overweight throughout on the back of tech spending going up, profit growth 20 plus percent, productivity weak, spending on software services, and CapEx within the tech sector surging 70 plus percent year over year. That gets recycled back into the sector. And lastly, leadership usually doesn't change. And so we saw that with energy last cycle, tech previous cycles, staples before that. And so we see tech leading us higher from here. We do see on down days in the market, the drawdown in technology in, in that sector seems to be more severe than in other sectors because it has been a top performer. Does that concern you longer term? Or do you think that the trend and its leadership position remains intact despite that? I think we, we have the fundamentals. We have some of the regulatory uncertainty, some of the other overhangs. We've seen the, the tech sector derate on a relative basis. And so we are watching for some of those pullbacks, how the sector is trading. We see it's trading a bit better. I think on days to today, like today, we've seen the tech sector trade off a little bit when we've seen the curve steepening. And so some worries about you know, longer end rates and that, that curve steepener having an impact. So, I mean, all the fundamentals that you just talked about, they're all still relatively in place. I, did you guys just miss the fact that the, the impact, if you will, of the, of the Chinese IP, uh, you know, sort of, uh, you know, Trump going after them aggressively and trying to figure this out? Was that part of the equation that you really missed? 301? 301, correct. I think trade was part of the concern. We had the you know, Facebook testimony around that time as well. Um, and so we saw some catalyst potentially see that momentum trade reverse. We saw that through the month of March. What did we get in terms of a circuit breaker? You know, the fundamentals trumping some of the, those concerns. Let me ask you, you said something about interest rates. For tech companies, which many of them have extraordinary balance sheets, what is it about interest rates? To me, they seem somewhat uh, isolated from the effects of interest rates. Why do you, do you view that as a risk to the space? Uh, we don't see it as a risk to the space. I'm just saying in terms of when you see days like today, we've seen the tech sector trade off when the interest rate curve has steepened. I think from our perspective, we put out a piece this morning, you know, interest rates are less of an impact on large cap companies, in particular tech, which has so much cash and debt that is termed out for, for quite some time. It should be much less of an impact given the strong growth. Tech is a monolith. So what parts of technology do you like? So we like software and services. So they are those areas where we do see the need for corporates to get more efficient in terms of productivity, improving uh, labor efficiency. We also like select tech hardware as that investment gets recycled through the supply chain. All right, Keith, good to see you. Thanks great. for coming back. Thanks Appreciate for having it. me. I love the fact that he made a made a great bold call back in March. It was right. Yeah. He, he had the they had the courage UBS to come back and say, you know, we might have missed this. We think we're right now. I think that's great. And to, to, in terms of the salt, like a Salesforce for it just showed Micron is a microcosm for how hard <laughs> this can be. I mean, that was a stock that went from 60 to 48. Seemingly without any real reason, analysts all downgraded on the bottom. Now everybody's stripping themselves here at 60 bucks again. It's very difficult, but I respect that, and I think if you're looking for a stock in the space, Salesforce makes the most sense. Uh, you know, staying in the theme of, of kind of 
data and security and protection. I think Cisco combines the best of both worlds. I mean, I think this is now a software company as much as it is a hardware company, but their securities and software businesses are booming. And I think they are best positioned to be the leader in that space because of where they sit in the middle of everybody's access on and off their networks. I think Cisco is still very cheap, even after a big move. Karen, you're still in Intel? Uh, still in Intel. I do like Cisco, but for me, uh, Alphabet's my biggest bet in the space. Yeah. Uh, look, Avago. Avago's a cheap stock. 50% gross margin, 40% roughly operating margin. This is a stock that people should be taking a look at for the long term. I'm not saying it's going to rip tomorrow, but I do think you can get a second half of the year turn in this story that could take it a lot higher. All right. Still ahead, check out shares of Micron. Speaking of Micron, soaring 6% today after announcing a massive share buyback. The CEO just sat down with Kramer moments ago, and he just said something very interesting about the future of technology. Plus, the home builders getting demolished this year, now on track for the worst year since the financial crisis. Is there a turnaround in sight? We will explain when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Home builders getting slammed today on Toll Brother earnings. The group now on pace for the worst year since the financial crisis. So do you still invest in this group? Seabrook, what do you say? I think you can. You absolutely do. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, Dr. Horton has been a name that I, I really love. I still own the stock. It's a name that I would continue to buy here. I think the component costs have absolutely gone, gone up. We saw it today when Polte, uh, you know, uh, gave out their report. Um, look, I think it's just a sentiment shift right now. Rates going higher, pushing people to the sidelines a little bit. I think there'll be a catch-up trade, and I think that's a second half of the year story. You know, it's funny because rates go higher, and then some people say that it pushes people to do the deal because yeah. they're worried about rates going even higher. Yeah. Gets them off the sidelines, but no, it's... The fundamentals for the housing sector, I, I, I think, are very strong. The, the issue in the housing sector, to me, is affordability, and, and I think that's really where you look at the different demographics and which home builders are better positioned in there. And, and you know, I, I actually like Pulte because I think this is a company that's now somewhere in the middle. They're running the company for much more aggressive growth than they were five years ago. Um, but I like home builders, too. In the middle in terms of? In terms of the demographic trends okay. and, you know, where yeah. they are on the high end versus, you know, the more affordable entry-level houses. Yeah. I'd still, I don't know necessarily, I know people will argue home builders on valuation, I get it, and they did have a great run earlier this year. However, I still think Home Depot off the move it's had to the downside to 185, to me is the best, continues to be the best way to play housing. Right, and that, that was my next question. What, does this See, signal, I anticipated. It's like you're in I'm, my so noggin. Why did you ask the Sunday's question anyway without her having to ask I it? I sort of did. I didn't want to, you know, I wanted to allow her that. Thank would you, you extrapolate the trouble in home builders to it's other parts question, of the economy Mel, and, you know, or other And stocks. I would extrapolate it, but I think if you're going to play the negative game with Home Depot, I think you're making a mistake, quite frankly. Great balance sheet, late spring cycle for all those folks planning out there, which will catch up in next quarter. And I think Home Depot is very interesting here. I was thinking Lowe's was sort of interesting. I mean, obviously Home Depot is the best in class and has and been. And Lowe's was a fast pitch of yours. Lowe's was very a fast recently. pitch very recently. It's up a little. I, I got to say, I wasn't so thrilled with the CEO choice, actually. Marvin Ellison of JCPenney? Yeah, I just felt like, uh, I don't know, maybe it's just momentum. You sort of want someone coming off yeah. a, a victory. I, I could not agree with you more. What? I could not agree with you more. He might be extremely talented. He might be exactly what they need. I was sort of surprised. Well, he was the one the who brought appliances to JCPenney. Didn't uh, he bring the appliance business yes. to JCPenney? Or plain okay. pocket jeans, guy. Yeah. Which I'm wearing right now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Wranglers. Yeah, baby. <laughs> anyway, you mentioned Lowe's. Home improvement stock, one of them, Lowe's, gearing up for earnings before the bell. The options market's implying some pretty interesting moves on this report. So let's get to our own Dan Nathan, who is in Las Vegas. No. Dan. Party boy. 
That's it. It all stays here, people. Um, here's the deal. This lows tomorrow morning. This is going to be really interesting. I know you guys were talking about Home Depot. You know, the stock has actually had a pretty muted reaction since its, uh, since its earnings a couple of weeks ago. But Lowe's is implying about a 4.5% move in either direction, which is rich to its average over the last four quarters, about 3.5%. Total options volume today was two times that of average. And interestingly, the four most active strikes were all short-dated puts. So you have this stock that gaps up on this big announcement of a new CEO, and then it reverses and it closes on the lows, and all options traders are doing are buying short-dated puts in front of that earnings print. And I just have two charts really to show that. Look at that two-day move if we have that up there. I mean, that is really, really bad price action. And then you go look at the one-year chart, and you see the early-year ramp, and then you see that gap lower on earnings last quarter 95 bucks i cannot imagine anytime soon the stock is going to be over that so to me you have a stock that's down 21 percent from its 52 week and all-time highs here it's a really important print a new ceo obviously there's this is not on him what they do but i can't imagine that their guidance is going to be particularly aggressive you got to let this guy come in and kind of set the stage for his regime Hey, Dan, it's Tim. I'm, I'm sure you're having a great time out there. But, you know, the bottom line here is this is a company that I it, aren't the expectations very low. Uh, in other words, I think people were very discouraged that this was a company after the tax cuts said they're going to reinvest in their business. Maybe they're chasing Home Depot. Who's expecting a lot here? Yeah, but you know what's interesting? So when you look at that implied move, Tim, about 5%, which is how much the stock actually moved today, you look at the stock, you look at the chart, and you have support down about 80, 81 bucks, and you have resistance near today's highs at about 90. This stock could be range-bound as investors get a sense for what the new CEO is going to be doing going forward. And I, I agree with you. I don't think that anyone's going to look at the guidance that they give right now or the results for last quarter, and they're going to say this is the direction of this company going forward under the new management. And just quickly before we leave this conversation, Karen, are, yeah. are you sticking with Lowe's here? Yes, I am. Although I'm, you know, I'm, because I think it is relatively undervalued, and I think some of their some of their problems are really of their own making. They can fix them. All right. Thanks, Dan. Bye, Enjoy Dan. Las Vegas. <laughs> For more options action, check out the full show Friday, 5:30 p.m. Eastern Time. Coming up, CNBC unveiling our top list of companies that will disrupt business as we know it. And Sally Krawcheck, one of the highest ranking women in finance, will be here to tell us how she is changing the face of investing in Wall Street. You will not want to miss that. Much more Fast Money still ahead. Welcome back to Fast Money. CNBC unveiling its sixth annual Disruptor 50 list today. These are the companies that are changing the way traditional companies are doing business. And this year's list making history by featuring more companies led by women than ever before. Julia Borson's in San Francisco with the details. Hi, Julia. Melissa, I'm here at 23andMe, which is one of the nine companies on the Disruptor 50 this list this year with a female CEO. That's up from just three female CEOs on the list last year. Now, this list um, of, of female CEOs this year includes Rent the Runaway, House, Lanza Tech, and Drawbridge, among others. There are 13 disruptor companies that have a female founder, including Southeast Asian ride-sharing giant Grab. Now, though the 26% of our list that has female founders is far from closing the gender gap, it is far better than the industry average. Women-founded companies comprised just 4.4% of VC deals last year, according to PitchBook. And VCs generally write smaller checks for female founders, an average of about $5 million last year to, compared to an average of about $12 million for men. Now, in this era of hashtag Time's Up, three companies on the list, SoFi, Uber, and Thinks, bounced back from allegations of gender discrimination and harassment. 
all replacing their CEOs. And along with feminine hygiene company Thinks, this year's list includes more companies targeting women. From Rent the Runway subscription wardrobe service to The Real Real, Designer Resale, and Elevest is looking to reinvent financial services for women specifically. Those entrepreneurs are looking to serve the needs of half of the population, which they say is underserved. You can find the entire Disruptor 50 list and much more about these CEOs and entrepreneurs on cnbc.com slash disruptors. Guys, back over to you. All right. Thank you, Julia. Julia Borston. Uh, well, as you just heard, female-focused investing company Elevest is on that list at a time when robo-advising is on the rise. Sally Krawcheck was known as one of Wall Street's most influential women. Now as a co-founder and CEO of Elevest, Elevest, she's looking to help women break down the walls they face in the investing world. She joins us today from Los Angeles. Hey, Sally, great to see you again. Hey, Melissa, how are you? Good to be here. We're all great here. Um, you know, Julie was mentioning some of the difficulties that women founders face as they fundraise for companies. So I'm just wondering, yeah. on the whole, is it better or worse for you to be a female-founded, female-focused company? Um, especially, you know, Julia says, these companies are perceived as serving half the population. You do, of course, say men can invest in this platform, but it is called right. Elevest, so men might not think that that one is for them. Well, we're pretty happy serving half the population that's been underserved in the investing arena. And it's really interesting because they're real analogies. If you think about venture capital, and she said that women got just 4% of venture capital dollars, and 95, 96% of venture capital partners are men, so maybe there's a relationship there. Look to Wall Street, look closer to home. 90% of traders are men, 86% of financial advisors are men, 90% of mutual fund managers are men, 95% of hedge fund managers are men, and women underinvest versus men, which is the opportunity we saw at Elevest. So it's not probably particularly surprising that industries that are dominated by men tend to do a better job for men, and there's an opportunity for businesses serving women. How has uh, robo-advising, how has LFS done in, in volatile times? We certainly, and certainly entered a, a yeah. period of greater volatility. Are you getting clients right. who want to trade? Are you allowing them yeah. to trade through volatility, or do you curtail their activities? So we are all about goals-based investing. We're not about trading. We're about setting an asset allocation to get individuals to their goals, adjusting it along the way, but not about trading. We've really seen very little uptick in volume during the volatility, and we've heard of some of the other digital advisors actually crashing, we think the reason we've seen very little uptick are, are two things. One, we've always heard women tend to trade less and panic less in tough markets. Now we can see it. And secondly, we built a product that tells women if they're off course in investing for their goals. So if the market's down, you know, they know that they'll get an email that says, hey, you know what, it went down more than we thought, you're off track, here's what to do, deposit another $100, you need to retire six weeks later, whatever those things were. So the combination of what the research has shown us and how we built the product um, has really shown us that we've had very little volatility, and in fact, in the past few weeks have had record weeks for us. Hey, Sally, it's Karen. Nice to have you with us. Congratulations on being hey, a disruptor. Um, by the way, I should disclose that I'm an investor in LFS, Sally's company. So let me ask you, during those volatile times, do you feel that the women sort of, if, the, if you can generalize that much, do you feel that the women sort of look at it as an opportunity, or do they also have the tendency to feel panicked in a volatile market and, oh, I feel safer getting out rather than in? Right. Well, look, I think we're all human. 
Um, but what we've seen is all of those articles that you might see on CNBC.com that are about mistakes investors make, over-trading, falling in love with the winners, panicking in downturns, paying too much in fees because of over-trading, really all need to be renamed mistakes that gentlemen investors make because the mistakes that women make is they tend to, the real mistake is they tend to underinvest, which is what we're trying to help them with. And so when we are speaking to our clients, they, you know, we've talked to them about this is a long-term initiative. You're trying to buy that house in six years or retire in 30 years. And I think they do see it as a, as a long-term initiative. And they just, we don't allow them to trade. It's not what our platform is. And so we see real stability amongst them during this. Sally, we just got news that the House uh, passed this piece of legislation that basically, you know, it, it sort of dis dismantles some of the financial uh, crisis era regulation. How do you feel about where banks stand right now, having been uh, at the head of a bank, practically the head of the bank, the highest woman, uh, highest ranking woman on Wall Street at one point in time uh, on Wall Street? Yeah. Um, look, there certainly were some regulations that were overreached. There always are when you come out of a crisis. But I think for all of us, you know, regulations that keep these banks well capitalized, um, banks remain pretty leveraged. We really aren't going to know um, what that really means until we see um, markets that are worse than the ones we've seen over the past couple of months. Uh, but I think for us as, as citizens of the country, uh, more capital at the banks is better because they remain highly leveraged and they're, they're really the heartbeat of the economy. Sally, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Hey. Sally Great. Thanks Krawcheck, for having me. The CEO of Elevest, which is on the CNBC Disruptor 50 list this year. Congratulations to Sally. Um, Karen, why did yes. you choose to invest? Do you think that this is an area that bigger banks need to get into? I do. I think it's a tremendous opportunity. I, I know exactly what she's talking about, of women not investing as much or that's a stereotype. That is true. Mm -hmm. And I think so that market is gigantic. And I also, you know, I'm very impressed by Sally. And it, her, certainly the experience that she had on Wall Street is tremendous. And, you know, Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, you can't have bigger experience than that. And I think that she's onto something. There is a gigantic market here. Yep. Gigantic. Still ahead, Micron is one of the best-performing S&P stocks this year, so can the chip stock continue to tick higher? Its CEO just sat down with Mad Money's Jim Cramer in an exclusive interview. We will have those comments for you next. We're live at the Nasdaq market site in Times Square. Much more Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got a burger buzzkill. Red Robin sinking 16% after hours following disappointing earnings, but it's not the only burger giant that's been singing the blues. Some other big names getting burned today. Shake Shack, Wendy's, McDonald's getting crushed. So is it time to take a bite out of these names? I will go to Guy since he's worked at I'm Shake Shack. The I, worked at, I worked at the Shake Shack. You worked at the Shake Shack. Red Robin, I mean, the quarter wasn't great. The guidance for the second quarter was pretty miserable. It's not a crazy expensive stock, but this guidance makes it expensive. Huge short interest, shorts are winning, and they're going to continue to push this lower. But to compare Red Robin, as we just did, I think, with Shake Shack, I think is a mistake. Who would go to a Red Robin? I mean, Nobody, apparently. Just because Robin. you don't know you what know, Red Robin is, you, have, Robin. An, you called... have a coastal bias, Tim. Well, if I'm getting yeah. a burger, why am I <laughs> walking right. to a place called Red Robin? I mean, anyway, look, I don't think these guys got that badly burned today. Think of the run that Shake Shack's been on. But if you think about the CRB, that's the commodities, you know, essentially index, is at highs we haven't seen since 2015. You've got labor costs that are very, very ugly for these guys. But valuations for the guys that are growing, and I, I will say that we are in a, a new era 
for what these things can trade at if they are growing. Did you know that there are potato costs also that are on the rise, apparently? Yeah. I didn't know potato. I do bought the avocado from last uh, Jack, year. Uh, that we learned that from Jack in the box is earnings. I'm not sure if the others are also facing the same potato problem. Right. Um, but higher costs in general, yes, particularly yeah, gas, labor, for sure. and, and labor gas prices. If you're paying $3 at the pump, are you going to pull up and get a, a Wendy's, whatever they serve, Frosty? Speaking of banks, which we did, I still love City right here. 32. 32 is a buyer of Kohl's, KSS. I think the pullback today is an opportunity to buy some stock cheap. Guy Dami. Steve Eiserman got mentioned on Fast Money for the first so time did, in 11 and, and so a half years. Eisenman. But I mentioned Stevie Y because the Tampa Bay big Lightning on the game. verge That's going to the State of the Cup Finals. We were just talking about that. Dime. Game right? seven. Yeah. Game seven. Dime. They're great stuff. Yeah, what was it? Do you have a final? I said yeah, I do have a final trade. Final because trade. Parker before. got me thinking. About, about do you remember what it was? He was thinking. That's what was happening. Sales he was waiting the for the thing to come up because he couldn't thinking. remember what it was. I'm Melissa Leacy back here tomorrow at 5 more fast. Don't go away. Uh, Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.